0: Hello and welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast, I'm your host Oliver Gaucher, and this is the podcast that talks all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture and regenerative living. I've got a great guest for you today, his name is Shad Goodsey and he's the co-owner of both the Bamboo Hotel and Atitlan Organics, a fantastic self-sustaining permaculture farm right here on Lake Atitlan, Guatemala. In this interview we get into growing a complete diet on your farm interacting with local farmers and workers in a foreign country, and Shad gives great advice on the first three steps on setting up your own farm. Now stay tuned at the end of this episode because Shad requested that I remove a little section of the interview in order to be included at a later part which will be posted on the website at AbundantEdge.com forward slash podcast and include some really good advice business advice that he's applied on his farm, in the hotel, and some of the other endeavors including teaching that have helped him to manage and organize his finances. Just a real quick disclaimer before we get started, there are a couple of instances of strong language in this interview, so if you have young listeners, this might not be the appropriate interview for them. All right, let's get started. Chad, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. We're here at the farm, Atitlan Organics, right next to the goats, so they might even choose to contribute to the podcast as well. It's a gorgeous day. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Oliver. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, glad
0: Glad to be here with you. It's a lovely day, and yeah, let's get into it. All right, let's start right off the bat. How did you go from living in New Jersey to owning land in rural Guatemala and starting a permaculture farm? What were the steps that made all this happen?
1: Okay, uh, so I was working. After New Jersey, I went to college and then graduated and went to Rhode Island for two years to work in a small consulting firm. Uh, during that time, I paid off my student loans. Uh, it's not only the goats, the pigs are here too. If you hear them, you'll, you'll know that's what it is. All sorts of uh, conjugations. Yeah. <laughs> um, and after, after paying off my student loans, I was dating... Uh, Colleen, who's now my wife, and at the time we both agreed we wanted to quit that job and travel, and I was kind of on the fence about traveling. I had traveled a little before, but really I was into farming and gardening. I'd been a gardener for a bunch of years, um, had heard about permaculture maybe a few years prior to quitting my job, uh, and kind of had the idea that I would travel, and then whenever that kind of finished, I would come back and take over. My great uncle's farm uh which was like an industrial 60 acre chemical cabbage and and pepper farm um and i had dreams of converting it and all that but anyway we started traveling and the plan was to do two months in in belize two months in nicaragua two months in costa rica and in the first stay in belize we took a little detour halfway through our time there and found the lake, found Lake Atitlan uh, in Guatemala. My wife had actually been there before, so she's the one who suggested we come back and see it. The first night we met a hostel owner who wanted to travel and was looking for someone to, to take care of his hostel. And one thing led to another. We ended up going back to Belize, getting our stuff, coming back, and renting this hostel for the remainder of our trip, which was like six months back to the US and then once again back straight to Guatemala and we ended up renting the hostel for two more years. So we, were, we ended up staying at the lake for two years during which time we had in originally intended to travel. With that money that I had saved for traveling I didn't have to spend it and towards the tail end of that in October 2009 my wife and I liked the lake a lot and still had really vague plans but decided to uh, use some of the money we had not spent traveling to buy a small piece of land, which has now become Attilan Organics.
0: Well, that's quite a story. So you've got quite a few diverse systems here on the farm. Did you design the whole place from the beginning, or has this all happened organically? Definitely was
1: not designed exactly from the beginning, no. Like what you see now, definitely... uh, a lot of what you see now,
0: it wasn't even on my possibility radar when we took over. Yeah. So you've just learned a lot as you've gone through and come up with new possibilities as things have presented in this house?
1: Uh, learned a lot for sure, whether I come up with the possibilities or the possibilities present themselves or people give you the idea that you just didn't have before. it You know, who knows where, the, where it comes from,
0: you know, uh, but... But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, what have been some of the key differences in working in this unique ecosystem of high-altitude tropics, having come from the American Northeast? That's an interesting one. Uh, we could spend a lot of time
1: on just that. But, you know, at the beginning, the first obvious observation, say, is that in the, in the Northeast, where I'm from, you have a uh, winter and a summer, and then you have this spring and fall edge transition seasons but it's really defined by a freeze and then hot uh, here the obvious like correlation or, or uh, mirrored pattern is dry and wet so instead of cold and hot it's dry and wet um so that that alone takes some getting used to but you know, i I always used to wonder, well, where are the edge seasons? Where's the fall here? And where's the summer here? Or the spring here, excuse me. If the summer is the dry season and the winter is the wet season, then where's the spring and fall? Um, And I think that that's where the metaphor, the analogy kind of falls apart. Like here, you either choose to look at it as all one kind of bland season, not bland, but one season, or you see that actually... Almost every month, there's new things. So here there's like a windy month. There's, you know, there's like all these different things. And even during the rainy season, there's different types of rain and the way it comes in. And there's always a little dry part in the rainy season. So it just is a whole different thing. And it's quite nuanced. Uh, Topographically, you know, parts of the Northeast probably look like this. But where I'm from, it's flat and quite coastal. And this is quite very rocky and very steep. So the land is broken. Um, that completely changes the strategies. Like you can't build a chicken tractor on this land. You know, you wouldn't move it more you than you, be uh, able a couple get of feet anywhere. before you would hit the a wheelbarrow. Wheel there's pretty much is um, non-existent. You know, yeah. you basically have to spend a couple of days making a path for your wheelbarrow if you want to use a wheelbarrow. You know, um, so ge- topographically, there's a lot of a lot of extreme differences between the two. Um, and, and understanding that even though there's a twelve month growing season we can grow year round and that's very awesome and fortunate, we don't get any more sunlight. You know, so the Northeast gets those eighteen hour days and and certain things really love that. And you think you're here and you should be able to grow everything, but you actually forget that you never really get more than thirteen hours of
0: sunlight. And so, so there's a lot of nuanced differences as well, say. Sure. And so within all those nuances, what are some of the primary relationships that make this ecosystem work this ecosystem on our farm or this ecosystem
1: like the lake ecosystem well, let's focus on the farm okay um there's a book called uh the self-sufficient life and how to lead it or how to live it the self-sufficient life and how to live it by john seymour a uh, great book it's like a classic you ever see it i haven't read that
0: one no i uh, we'll put that in the show notes so anyone can yeah it's great it. it's great uh
1: It was definitely one of those like first books you read and you're just like this dude is a ninja like he just knows everything like the book has everything from how to like tap a spring to how to build living fences how to build a house to how to ferment honey wines make make yogurt everything you know um and it's awesome like great great like invaluable beginners homesteading resource for sure um and in that book, he says nothing keeps the health of a farm and a family like a milk cow, like a dairy cow. Um, we don't have any cows here, uh, but I do really think that the goat, in a sense, is the is like the key, like nurturing force that's on the farm. Uh, everything kind of moves around the goats, in a sense. We don't have that many goats they're 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 not what makes the most money they're more they're one of the most profitable for sure but chicken makes us more money but the goats they they eat stuff that nothing else eats there's an abundance of it around here and otherwise really the only thing to do maybe chickens eat a small amount of it maybe the pigs eat a small amount of it maybe you turn it into compost but the goats will do a better job of that than you can right so you basically look all these mountains that's cheese that's yogurt you know that's goat meat so we're getting stuff that has no value that people just burn and we're turning it into like super high value like quote-unquote economic from the from the value-added products we make but then what, what comes out the other end the manure we treat it really properly we honor it we respect it we balance it with carbon which is one of our biggest inputs in the farm. We grow a shit ton of carbon. We use a lot of carbon. We bring in as much as we can still. We get bales of hay. We get wood shavings. It's like anything we can get our hands on, we bring it up. And we layer that between the goat manure and the goat urine. And then that like sparks everything else. And then that goes to the chicken house. Then the chickens turn the hell out of that and they poop in it and they mix it up. And then we let it compost down and we dig it out. And then that goes to the food forest, to the vegetables, to everything. And then that all stuff. Helps to feed the goats again, and so I really think the goats are like one of those nodes that have tons of connections sure. in the system. You know,
0: they kind of key everything in yeah. to everything else.
1: And there's others like that. You know, <clears throat> we're not. And I don't. I want to make it clear, we're
0: not a goat farm, <laughs> right? But it's what they're one of those like they're driving a high contributor. Exactly. Sure. Now you produce a lot of your own food here, and you also produce a majority of the food that you sell at the Bamboo Hotel. How do you prioritize what crops to grow and in what quantity to meet such a big demand from a relatively small piece of land? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, we're still, we're
1: still not quite where I want to be. You know, you'll never be, you know, hopefully you always have something to work towards. Let's say that. Um, but the dream for the bamboo is, yes, I would love to be like, you know, 70% of what is on the bamboo plate is from Atitlan Organics, and the other 30% is from right in the, say, 50-kilometer radius from our point, uh, and that would include the corn. We're lucky enough to live right next to the coast. I just came back from the beach, so we get all our sea salt from the beach, like right from there we get, you know. So even if those small things, how do you get that sort of stuff? Coconut oil and things like that can come right from there. So I really do think we can achieve this bioregional and super local and farm to table uh thing at the bamboo um again at our house the original kind of first five years the bamboo wasn't here and we were how do we grow all our own food how do we grow all all the food that we eat so um two of the bigger challenges i'll say for for growing food if you want to if you want to if you want to feel that feeling that says if everything else collapsed around us we could still pretty much feed ourselves right you know um the two big challenges we've found have been grains cereals or energy crops the carbohydrate like here potatoes don't grow really well and there's so many rocks so even though sweet potatoes do it's like it's a lot of investment to make a huge bed of sweet potatoes. You have to take out so many rocks and dig. It's like, it's like a kind of a tricky thing. Um, in other parts of Sununa, they grow real well. So so I'm talking more about our little area here. Um, so, so one was carbohydrate and we found taro root. Taro root or malanga, it's a staple root crop. They grew it in Hawaii. They still grow it in Hawaii. All the Polynesian islands, Fiji, all that stuff taro root. You might see it in like fancy chip mixes. It's purple and white, like speckled purple. It's awesome. It's just like a potato. We grow that everywhere on the farm. So we, when we found that out, we were like, whoa, we can grow like that. You can live on taro root and goat cheese, you know, like that's a complete diet, right? So like we were like, all right, we got it. We did that. And now we sell like 10 or 15 pounds of taro root every week to the hotel. And it's not the only root they use, but uh, it's there. and It's, there. it's your
0: main carbohydrate. It's our main
1: carbohydrate. So that was like one little success we had to kind of figure out. And the other one was fats. Like, where do your fats come from? If you really are serious about growing your own food, how do, you, how do you saute a vegetable? How do you get any oil? Right? It's tricky. Without mechanization, uh, wheat and, and all those small grains, oats, and all that stuff becomes quite impractical. Corn is still insanely labor intensive. If you ever watch the local mine women, they they have all the tricks with an empty corn cob and then a full corn cob with all the seeds still on it, and they use the empty one to get the seeds off the big corn cob with the full corn cob. That's a hard job. And imagine doing that for every tortilla you're going to eat, and yeah. then you have to grind it with a stone. You know, so think compare that to like digging a potato out of the ground so grain is like really crazy but then the oils in those grains are even harder because then once you get that sunflower out of the head or once you get that flax seed out of the head or once you get that whatever corn you're going to press for your oil then you have to press it and then you know and then you have to store it so it quickly
0: becomes not worth the calories you're getting out yeah
1: it's hard without proper mechanization and i'm not against mechanization but like if you have too many moving pieces, if the system becomes too complex, it doesn't always sustain itself. There's yeah. more to fail. So where do you get your fats? That was the other question, and really it's from animals. Sure. It's from pigs, it's from the lard, uh, and that's easy. You know, in, in on, a, on, on a fire that you can make right next to you, you can get all your fat you need for a year, you know, from a pig. So, um, so those two things were real important in Grow the Diet, and we prioritized them because of that. Going back to your question, What did we prioritize in growing all this food? It was like, well, we had to figure out how to grow the carbohydrate. We had to figure out how to do the fat. Um, The protein we got just by the nature of what we do, the milk and the cheese and chicken and eggs and all that other stuff. Now we're in the bamboo and basically we sell, you know, we have more eggs than the bamboo buys. So they're not our only customers, say, but all their eggs come from us. All their dairy comes from us. All their chicken comes from us. All the honey, all the coffee, a lot of the stuff that's covered, all the salads, all the cooking greens, which is one of the main vegetables, but they're still buying a lot of vegetables. And we spend a lot of money on vegetables just from the market. And they're not organic, really, whatever. They're just like, they're probably locally grown, but they're just like the regular vegetable. And it's because here we don't have a strong um, uh, horticulture. We just not focus so much on vegetables beyond salad greens and cooking greens. So that's currently, let's put it this way, we've kind of got all the animal products down. I've been working for the past year on my main project has been my back garden. And one of the multiple goals is developing seeds. Like, But this is not a short-term project because you have to trial everything, see what works, then save those seeds and grow them out and save them again. Like You have to prove that they work here. right? So really like a year and a half to two years minimum for any seed crop. And I'm on it. We're a year into it. I'm trying like 14 different vegetables that I want to work with. Hopefully, I'll be able to share those seeds out to people here, but also have the tools we need with the compost to, st- to clear a nice piece of land to grow full veg for the restaurant and other people. So, that's like the newest priority is, is the vegetable portion. We got the malanga. We got the other stuff. Sure. <clears throat>
0: now, many of the neighboring farms like you're talking about still rely on monocrops, chemical fertilizers, insecticides to turn a profit. What has been your relationship with other local farmers in your community with the difference in practices that you've implemented? Um, I mean, like,
1: so the people who, who work here are implementing this stuff on their own pieces and also buying more land, valuing land for sure more. Um, we've had varying things for two years. I worked... <clears throat> for an NGO and I was the agricultural specialist for four, uh, for four communities. Sununá, San Homel, Pahomel, and Chwisanchak. So I, we built about 60 family gardens. We put in four community gardens. We did work with some farmers as well. Um, everything, the, the agriculture here is still quite like textured and varied. It's a lot of coffee. A lot of people have coffee. Um, uh, that includes shade trees and firewood. Um, it's weird, so what, you know, part of what I want say is, someone once said to me, there's a guy who runs an NGO, they work on the coast, they work in, like, the flatter lands, and the coast, and he was, like, he said, farming in the highlands is dead, is what he said to me, and, uh, it's kind of true, most highland, like, highlands here in the lake, they're densely populated, and there's more economy, there's more stores, there's more, uh, tourism there's more of all this stuff so instead of having a cornfield or this garden type space uh tomato field that you have to visit once a week and keep up on and and then it requires a lot of stuff most people just put things in coffee they visit it once a month let's take the family out you know on a sunday to the coffee field and uh and they have other jobs and they have other things so um so i don't know what any of our impact is on the on the local community uh and something that I imagine will probably come up in the interview soon. But for the first six years, it felt like the farm was, you know, struggling just to make its earnings, make its earnings. And finally, in the past year, we've like rounded this corner, and I feel like we actually we know the money's there and coming in and working for us. And like, all right, now we can put, afford to pay everyone, and there's still a little left over. And I think not only does that we're going to start doing profit sharing, but it also means that we have more time and resources to perform community service. We just don't know what that looks like yet. And it can't just be me saying what it is. So it's me, Nicolas, and Juan, the three people who work on the farm together collectively talking these ideas. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I know you also also in a lot of volunteers, students, and apprentices all throughout the year. Uh, how have all these visitors and uh, contributors helped to develop Atitlan Organics, and how have you managed so many people coming and going?
1: Um, yeah, that's also a good question. Several years ago, you know, when we first started, the first two years, it was just me and Colleen here. Uh, we didn't have any volunteers. We still, to be clear, don't host anyone on the farm, sleeping-wise. You know, it's just just people coming uh, during the day. Um... We, I always kind of knew we would be a wolf host. That's how I started traveling was by wolfing and I just kind of figured that we would participate in that program. Um, to be fair, uh, things like Wolf and HelpX have a reputation that the hosts charge for the volunteers. I think in developed countries, in industrialized countries where labor is expensive, wolf is usually free. Like if I had a, I have Market Garden in New Jersey, if I could get woofers in New Jersey, I would house and feed them for sure because it's cheaper to house and feed someone than it is to pay them to weed and do things you need them to do. Uh, in In Guatemala, it's the exact opposite. There's amazingly capacitated, strong, like uh, competent people who are looking for employment, and it's less expensive no matter how much you pay than it is to house and feed someone, right? And so we've always chosen to work like to depend on our local community and not international travelers because part of it from the beginning is uh, i don't like even hotels like in the kitchens a lot of kitchens and hotels and receptions run on on uh, volunteer staff and i never want to do that because a i think uh the local community should be also part of the projects but also that they're here and they. Like they're not going anywhere, you know, whereas the travelers is going to Mexico in, in two months. Yeah, you know, they're more you know. invested yeah. in your And so, your project. Um, so basically uh, we, we grew into it. The first two years, we didn't have anyone come on. And then we rented a small guest house that a local family owned Uh, month to month, and we put a few volunteers, capped it at four, and they would come up for four hours and work, and we would give them lunch, you know, and that was the exchange, and they paid a really small fee to the family, direct to the family, so it was very clear we weren't making any money, you know. Um, Since then, it's evolved and has done different things. About five years ago, I got invited to teach my first permaculture design course with Ronnie Leck at the Mesoamerican Institute of Permaculture. It was a week there and a week here, and we co-facilitated it, and um uh this was the fifth annual one we did was just this past december 2016 and um about two years ago we started hosting week-long workshops almost every month so that kind of sums up what kind of visitors do we get well about five years ago we started hosting volunteers for the first time in various capacities never sleeping here now for the past two years they sleep at the bamboo uh, but then we also host uh, week-long workshops every month, and then also uh, a couple of PDCs a year,
0: always in conjunction with someone else. Now, I first met you when I came a few months ago to assist on a natural building workshop with Liz Jondro that you hosted here. Why has natural building been a priority for your development on the farm, also, of course, on the Bamboo Hotel, mm-hmm. which is a natural building, and part of the cu- curriculum that you offer here from time to time? Mm-hmm. Um, well, this so the course where we met was the
1: second natural building course that Atitlan Organics has hosted with Liz Jandro uh, and Charlie Rendell. Um After the first course, admittedly, I was very minimally involved in the day to day, and I picked up some things just because Liz is such a great teacher, and even just being there ten minutes, you pick up something awesome. Um, but Admittedly, minimally involved, after that course, we built three natural animal houses. Uh, and that was super uh, empowering for us at the farm. The animal houses are always an issue because you build them and you don't know exactly how they're supposed to be and, and if they're in the right place. And you always end up knocking them down and building them again. And it's just like you have to be flexible with that. And we're always looking how to reuse materials. And I don't know, for some reason, it's always we always think wood and some bamboo. And I don't know. But uh, since the first course, we've now built like three different f- types of Waddle and daub or Baja Rec houses, all A-frame style, <clears throat> all using split bamboo, all from the farm. So it's pretty much 100% from the farm. Or recycled materials they cost us nothing but labor so at the farm level the natural building has already had like a sweet impact just even on the super functionality that they don't have to look great they just have to work and they're, they're actually perfect for animals like it's like it's amazing you know so that alone was super cool but um and and as we build small infrastructure expansions on the farm having the natural building courses and the tools at hand is awesome you know um mm-hmm. But largely, the vision of the bamboo is to host groups. Is to host groups. I don't want night-to-night people. I don't want anything. I want want groups that come for a week or two weeks, that eat all their meals there, and that have a super deep, rich, transformational experience. You know, that they learn something, that they take somewhere with them. And so, uh, the bamboo has a vision of hosting 40 weeks of groups a year and permaculture fills already about 14 of them so we have about 36 no 26 weeks left and when i met liz she you know the bamboo is a perfect example of natural building the farm is a perfect playground uh and it just seemed like hey we can offer a couple courses a year and the farm can kind of incubate them at the beginning and the bamboo benefits by hosting everyone and we're really good at that and it adds a nice touch and then we hopefully uh will will the idea i think in the future is that the natural building will be done on local people's lands or on basically anywhere in sunana that will that right now the past two projects have taken place on the farm but the goal i think in the future is like as we get more set up and we know what tools we need and what we have the idea would be like Well, we do a couple a year and we try to do some things that benefit like more people than just the farm, you know?
0: Absolutely. And branch out a little bit and expand it throughout the community. That's fantastic. So you also teach the full permaculture design curriculum here on the farm and also take on apprentices who stay on longer and learn more hands-on permaculture work. What are some of the most important lessons and concepts that you try to emphasize to the students who come here? Forget good and bad. What do you mean by that? There's no good. There's no bad.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Like my biggest, newest, my newest, biggest advice. But my first thing I used to say, like I eat animals. I, I think our farm functions really well with animals on it, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary that animals be involved in permaculture designs. I'm not here to convince anyone to be a meat eater or even to have animals in their houses or in their, uh, on their homesteads. um, I really have no motivation to convince anyone of anything when I teach, right? Uh, The only thing that I say if there's one message is that the dominant Western culture these days sends this message to everyone that humans are bad for the planet. You know, uh, environmentalism is anti-human, it hates humans. It says you know humans destroy the planet so let's fence off this whole area and and conserve this forest so that humans don't destroy it but a forest without people is also quite depressing and depressed you know and then it, that same mentality that says we have to conserve and restrict this because humans otherwise will destroy it it also admits that it's okay that humans destroy all of this over here right so you think if you poop somewhere it's not going to mess up somewhere else and. And I think the whole environmental movement hates humans. It says that humans are bad and they're going to destroy the planet. My only message, the only thing I want to convince people is that that is not true. That actually, humans can be bad for the planet, but they can also be amazingly beneficial and enriching and diversifying and beautifying of, of the planet. That we have a true ecological role and ecological function to play. What is it? I don't know. I have some ideas. I would maybe think about that. But, um, but basically, that's the one message I would really say being like that we are we can be great for the planet. That would be like my big one.
0: yeah, I, I completely agree with that now, in nearly a decade of living and farming uh, a lot of that in this community here in Guatemala, what have you been or what have been some of the most important lessons that you've learned yourself in that time hmm. a good
1: one. um. I guess first thing that comes to mind is listen just listen listen to people uh, and ask the right questions right if you think you know something you probably
0: are wrong Yeah. You know? so keep an open mind to what yeah. the environment is telling you and yeah. sure um, and that the- and that everything is true from a different perspective partly yeah definitely very cool now for those people out there who are just getting started developing land into a permaculture site, what advice would you give them on what steps to prioritize and where to put their energies first? Okay, they, there's a saying that
1: uh, when you move onto a site that you're gonna design, you shouldn't do anything at all for a year. Uh, and that's everywhere you go to learn permaculture, they'll say that. Uh, I was just teaching an intro course right after the Cosmic Convergence uh, work, Festival, and I was co-teaching uh, with a facilitator from Israel. He studied in Israel. He teaches in Israel. He's like pretty much as almost exclusively his permaculture experience is the Middle East. And uh, he said the same exact thing: when you you know you move onto a piece of land, observe it for a year and do nothing. And it's really hard for a lot of us in our mentality to just like hey, let's do this, let's do that. <clears throat> so I think couple that with with. The idea that you can try everything if you know it's going to be very small and and with the extent with the intention of just learning not so much building something that's going to last for a long time and what i would say is in that first year observe don't build anything big observe all the movements of water and sun and wind and everything like that animals and plants and soil but you can do three things in the first year you can make a nursery you can make a plant nursery flatten a piece of ground start planting plants in bags. Because you can keep plants alive in a nursery for a year, no problem, even if you have to move them up to bigger pots, and then they're mobile. And after a year of observation, you have a shit ton of plants, you can boom, bomb your land, you know? So that's one thing is make a plant nursery and try a bunch of stuff. You're going to learn a shit ton in that nursery. Second thing I would say you could do is haul carbon, bring in carbon, bring in as much carbon as you can, bring in wood shavings, wood chips, straw, hay, grass, it doesn't matter what bring it on. Even if you have to move it later, you're not sure where to put it, just get it on there. You won't regret that. The third thing I would say to do is probably make a vegetable garden. You know, Especially if you're living there, because in one year, my back garden, I started February 24th. It's now, December, it's now January 6th. hasn't even been a year, and I've eaten so much stuff out of it. The only thing you would be be good to note to yourself is that you might observe that that's the worst place to put the vegetable garden, or that that's the best place to put the vegetable garden, but it's a better place for the house, or etc., etc., and so um, be, be be nimble if you do any development in that first year
0: be ready to change it that's some fantastic advice I appreciate that, now for those people who want to learn more about your farm and all the courses and volunteering opportunities that you offer where can they find you and what's the best way to get in touch uh, atilineorganics.com
1: website or just google us, we're on Facebook Line Organics, YouTube we have a sweet YouTube channel with a bunch of videos and we're you do, we're I'm a big fan of what you've got on there. Thank you. Yeah, we're releasing every two weeks or so. We put a new video out, uh, super educational, super fun. So you can find us there, you can find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram,
0: find us on the web, or best yet, just come and visit. Fantastic. And I know you've got a little incentive for people who write blogs as well. Uh-huh. You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, basically, we the original idea came out of this thing, like we get a lot of people that come for a month, like that's a common stay, like they want to spend four weeks on the farm. So my idea was like, if someone's going to stay for like at least a week or two, it would be great to capture their experiences, right? So my original idea was like, if you come and stay for a week, we have a form on our website where you can upload three photos and, and like, uh, you know, the a blog that's like a minimum of 250 words and a maximum of 1,000 and you're required to put like 10 tags in. So it's about something on the farm. And I encourage people to get beyond, this is what Sununa is like in my first day on the farm. More like... Find something that grabs your attention. Whoa, I didn't know turmeric grows here. Let's learn more about turmeric. And then you know, write a blog. So like get get stuff that's like kind of interesting. Get some pictures up there. And then basically the idea is we would create it into a blog post and then you would share it on your Facebook page. And every time you do that, you get like a free night and all your meals that day for free. So you can do one a week and you get a night with free meals uh, per, per week to do it. It was just like the idea that like people are usually taking pictures anyway. And a lot of people are even capturing their thoughts in journals so why not share it with people uh in a way to build our social media hasn't quite worked like that but it has attracted a fair amount of like somewhat recognized bloggers and then we do the same thing you write an article you know you get it night free and your three meals and
0: fantastic that's week. an awesome incentive well Chad, thank you so much for taking time today it's been a real pleasure
1: yeah thank you oliver i enjoyed myself as well and uh yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad we could make this happen, and all the best of luck with your podcast, man. Thanks so much. Yeah. We'll
0: talk again soon. For sure. All right, bye. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find links to all the information covered in this interview at AbundantEdge.com forward slash podcast. There you can also find a full range of services from building, consulting, and design from any range of natural building and permaculture projects. Now, the most important part of this podcast is that it's meant to be a dialogue. None of these are published in order to be a lecture series or to be a one-way listening experience. More than anything, I want your feedback, especially in these early stages and early episodes. I really want to hear what you think. I would love to know what sort of subjects and possibly even people that you would like to hear more from. Send me an email at info at AbundantEdge.com or comment on the website Until the next episode, this is Oliver Gauthier. Thank you for listening.